Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Today, we're recording from San Francisco, where I am with Katerina Fake, founder of Flickr, partner at YesVC, and the host of the new podcast, Should This Exist? Welcome, Katerina. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I would love to hear more about the backstory behind the podcast. I know you're on your third episode at the moment, but maybe just walk us through the history of it. Why, why did you want to start it? Should This Exist is a brand new podcast, as you mentioned. It just started a month and a half ago. Um, actually, less, I would say a month ago. And um, we're three episodes in, and it is about the effect of technology on humanity. And the, the thing that's interesting about this podcast is that people are saying to me, why did you decide to do a, a podcast on this topic? And it's interesting because I have been talking about exactly this thing for pretty much most of my career and have always thought of one of my principal jobs in this industry as humanizing technology. This conversation was a conversation that I'd say, um, you know, many of us in the industry, you know, were having, and yet it was not the predominant conversation that was happening in the industry. Mm -hmm. And suddenly what happened is the context of this conversation changed. The 2016 elections happened here in the United States. There were a lot of, um, you know, kind of mistrust that was built up in the technology industry. And suddenly people realized that they were always asking themselves, could this exist? But they were never asking themselves, should this exist? Mm -hmm. And we felt that this was a very important um, current conversation that we all need to be having. Mm -hmm. A few of the episodes obviously cover technologies that can help us with our health. Uh, if I recall correctly, one of them is around mental health. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share what the outcome was for you of, of that one? What was the impetus behind that one? So the way that the show works is we bring an entrepreneur onto the show and um, she basically describes her technology. We then bring in experts to discuss the technology, mm -hmm. some of the implications of it, some of the unintended consequences, both utopian mm -hmm. and dystopian outcomes if this technology became ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. And then we go into a workshop phase with the entrepreneur to discuss that conversation mm -hmm. and to guide her technology towards its best possible future. Mm -hmm. And that's really the format of the show. And so um, the way that that particular episode worked, it was it was about a technology called Wobot, which is an AI-enabled chatbot, which acts as your therapist. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's amazing about that is that you can have therapy available to you 24-7 to millions and millions more people than any therapist could serve in a lifetime. And that um, in some ways, it's interesting, it may be better to have a bot as a therapist for a lot of reasons which I hadn't even realized until I spoke with the founder who herself is a, a, a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. and also a technologist, which is that in some ways having therapy you know, when you're sitting at the kitchen table, when you're in your bedroom, when you're at home, means that in some ways you can be more open in a way that you can't when you have to go out into the world 
and have to present yourself to the world and have to, you know, kind of be concerned with what the therapist thinks of you and that I hadn't really considered before. Mm -hmm. There are certain things that machines do better than people. For example, being available 24-7, being incredibly patient to listen to you, mm -hmm. kind of explaining your, your, mm -hmm. your issues, right? Mm -hmm. But then when you look at the technology again and you think to yourself, what if everybody was using this? What if everybody was doing this like all the time? Mm -hmm. Does this diminish your likelihood of reaching out to other people? Does this undermine your relationships with others? Mm -hmm. And so every technology which has benefits and drawbacks and potential outcomes that you may or may not anticipate, mm -hmm. those are the things we really dig into. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because the, the, the fun thing about that is that you also can explore how that shifts with time because, you know, you look at how even our changes on parenting theory have changed in the last, you know, four or five decades. Sure. And so it's, it's also interesting to see how much we might revise some of these things. I'm curious to see how over the next few years that evolves. And then we are like, oh, actually, you know, it turns out that we need to tweak the bot a certain way. Exactly. To have the right thing. Yeah. And I mean, and I think that the question, should this exist? A lot of people at the beginning thought that, oh, well, Katarina is going to weigh in and make decisions about what should and shouldn't exist. And, mm. you know, I would love to have this uh, kind of, godlike power to, mm. to make those determinations. But really what the show is about is introducing the question, yeah. should this exist, into the conversation mm. that entrepreneurs are having with themselves, mm. and then continually having that conversation with themselves as the world which changes so rapidly yeah. around them and their products. Well, the, the great thing about having your new fund up and running is that in many ways, should this exist, is enabled by being an investor because many times things exist because they've been given funding to exist. So, exactly. So maybe yes, that's a good yes. transition to share a little bit more about. Yes. It's a symbiotic, SPC. it's a symbiotic relationship. And the other thing too, is that um, one of the great advantages of being an investor and yes, VC is a pre-seed and seed stage investor. We do very early stage companies. Mm. We are seeing companies with novel new technologies. So that's one thing mm -hmm. we're learning a lot about new categories and technologies that have not yet become full-blown industries. Um, we're seeing kind of AI in its mm. very early stages. Um, and also that the companies that we do invest in, we know that we're investing at an early enough stage mm. that introducing, you know, some of the thinking that goes on in the show into our companies just makes them stronger as yeah. they go along. So, you know, in some ways it feeds me, right? And mm. that I become a better investor and that I have a better understanding of all of the technologies are out there, what the different companies are doing, which benefits the show. Yeah. And then the show itself often leads us to more deal flow yeah. as well as helping us in terms of the development of our existing companies. And so it's been a really, it's been a really wonderful experience. And maybe we can dig deeper into what you're looking at at the SVC, the sectors that you guys interested in. You mentioned obviously pre-seed and C being the area of focus, but in terms of sectors, stage um, across you know different technologies and maybe even ge geographies. Right. Well, we it's interesting because we're based here in Silicon Valley, and yet we spend a great deal of time in Europe. Um, we are a we are a a couple. Yuri is Finnish. I am American. We do spend, you know, three to four months a year in Europe based there. We have investments mostly in the U.S., which is where our fund is based, but have also, you know, kind of a very deep interest and kind of very strong relationship with 
Europe. And so we do see, we do see that um, the world of startups is changing, that there's an incredible amount of energy in outside of the Valley. And even in the United States, we're seeing that out of the 11 investments or so that we've done, only three are in the Bay Area, mm. which I think is, is a significant thing. You would not have seen this. When I started out as an entrepreneur, there were a bunch of firms, all run by men, almost exclusively, on Sand Hill Road. They would only meet you on Mondays for their partner really? meeting. It was, you had to come there. And then when you showed up there, and I know this because Flickr was based in Canada, that you would um, almost inevitably be asked if your plans were to move to the Bay Area, right? That was kind of the practice circa, you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. That is how, you know, companies like Facebook, for example, that was that was based in Boston, mm -hmm. was encouraged very strongly to move out to the Bay Area mm -hmm. and did. And so, and during that era, it was the assumption was, this is Rome. And everything else is mm. the colonies, and it's just it's just um, you know this is the heart of this is the heart of everything. To 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 a large extent, that is still true. However, less and less and less as time goes by. The uniqueness, I would say, of this sort of pan global uh, view that you guys have is is actually quite timely because there's still a lot of investors that are not willing to invest outside of you know their, their zip code. So. It is very, you know, you know, reaffirming and, and, and great to hear that you're doing that. And w within that, within that remit, what are the things that you're seeing that are uniquely coming out of, let's say, a geography like Europe versus here? You know, a lot of people who are listening to this are obviously more familiar with the European ecosystem. But, you know, maybe they, it's always great to hear what kind of stuff you see out of Europe that's excellent, that is perhaps, you know, unexpected from a USBC point of view. You know, maybe whether it be sectors or whether it be... Well, we see a lot of, you know, it's interesting because we're we're largely based in, when we're in Europe, in the Nordics. Hmm. And we do see a lot of, we don't invest in games. And, yeah. and you know, um, you know, Finland is, Finland's got like a huge kind of gaming, gaming hmm. exit, exit uh, kind of um, ecosystem. And we're, we just don't participate in that. But what we do see is a lot of, um, a lot of really great deep tech teams actually coming out of there mm -hmm. and um i i find that the you know the companies that we're, we're looking at there they're in you know kind of ai they're in uh, uh years pre previously an investment in a satellite company mm -hmm. um you know we've been looking at a lot of things that are you know just frankly more technical and i wouldn't expect for example to see a lot of consumer companies yeah. you know coming out of coming out of the Nordics mm -hmm. like you do here. And we do have a lot of investments here in consumer-based companies. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's much easier with a, with a country with 400 million people versus, you know, much smaller population mm -hmm. in Europe um, to kind of get to scale rapidly with consumer products, mm -hmm. which, is, which is frankly more difficult to do in in Europe. So, and there's a lot of theories about about the European market mm. and, you know, recently actually Yuri spoke at a, you know, kind of the the Stanford Europreneurs event, yeah. um, you know, kind of about the European um, ecosystem and everybody's theories about how to help the European mm. ecosystem to grow. So, 
Um, well, on, on that, uh, growth sometimes comes from knowing when to tap which sources of international capital and when. And I think it's an interesting thing that you guys back European founders as well as obviously local ones, but that your background, you know, coming from a company that was based in Canada, what what would be like the top two pieces of advice that you give founders who are perhaps not in the U.S. when they're trying to approach the next phase of funding from a U.S. investor that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, we do have a, we do see a great deal of, of um, traffic actually coming from Europe from from investors who, I'm sorry, from founders who are looking for investment from Valley-based funds, mm-hmm. right? And and they are aware that they want to, you know, kind of have a foot in the door mm-hmm. when they arrive here and are coming as early as pre-seed and seed mm-hmm. stage, you know, and not for their Series A, B, C kind of later stage uh, financing, which historically is what, mm-hmm. what has happened previously or coming much earlier because they understand um, that those early stage investors will help them with every subsequent stage mm-hmm. of money that is, is raised. And it's no secret that there's a great deal more capital mm-hmm. um, here in the U.S. than there is that there is in Europe. And, you know, in order, in order to kind of um, develop those relationships, it's funny because, um, you know, it's often the funds like so, for example, you'll see funds like. I don't know, like um, Crandom or EQT, yeah. you know, from Sweden or, um, you know, some of the other kind of uh, Northern European or even yeah. some of the Western European funds starting an office here. Yeah. Because what they're finding is that the the Swedes or the German or the French who actually are looking to raise money, they can actually be the first point of contact for them yeah. and are capturing a lot of the European um you know, entrepreneurs that are coming out to the valley to raise. Yeah. So in, in, in a lot of ways, it's a, um, it's a, you know, it's an important thing to kind of develop those relationships mm-hmm. and um, cultivate those relationships with, you know, kind of people in the valley very early on mm-hmm. in, in the stages of investment that are, um, you know, kind of historically considered to be outside mm-hmm. of the, outside of the normal practices. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we do in the podcast is explore the story that, as you mentioned, uh, building relationships, coming over here and, and, and raising money for, for Flickr. Maybe we can start delving into some of the, the background story that, that, that led to the creation of the company, but also how you got into entrepreneurship. So I right. always like to ask you know, this question to help ground a lot of people who are thinking about whether they want to start something. What was the first thing you did out of college? I was a um, account executive at an insurance company where my father had actually worked. Um, I was there for a year. I was not a successful insurance executive, and I don't think I had ever planned on doing that. My background was in art and in mm. literature, mm. and I ended up being a um, for many years a painter actually. And I worked in a studio there. I worked in an investment bank. I worked in a dive shop um, and I traveled the world. I traveled all over the place. I, I, I backpacked all around um, South America. And so I had a very peripatetic career early on in my career. And I think that it's funny because I see kids these days, right? You know, quote unquote, kids these mm. days. And they are so career focused and so career oriented. And I have to admit, I was not. And mm. I wandered and I spent a lot of time reading books, meeting people, traveling, doing odd jobs. I worked, you know, 
um, on the television show Seinfeld as a production assistant. I was a stylist for TV commercials. I did all kinds of stuff. And I honestly think that a lot of the reason why I have a particular strength in this industry and why I have this reputation as the kind of humanizing technology person is because I have this very wide experience of the world, which was not spent mm. sitting in IKEA chairs in open floor space plans working on startups, mm. but have all of this real world experience, which has given me so much broader of a perspective as to what products people want, need, and um, can develop and how. Mm. And so I believe that, you know, you know, those of you who are actually interested in, you know, starting a career in entrepreneurship should really take advantage of your youth yeah. and your freedom and your ability to travel Mm. and um, experience new things and do all kinds of odd jobs mm. and work in different industries before you settle down and start building companies. Mm. So when do you think that you officially said, okay, I'm, I'm going to settle down and start? I was 28 years old, yeah. and I arrived in San Francisco, and the web was kind of getting off the ground, yeah. and that was really when I got started. So yeah. if you can imagine, right, I graduated when I was like 21 or 22. Mm. So I had a good, you know, seven years, seven years of kind of just life experience mm. before I found technology yeah. as my as my path. Yeah. So I think that's also a very significant thing in my life. I feel as if I haven't missed out. Yeah. And you never want to look back on your life and say like, gosh, you know, as I was working at my startup writing code uh, seven days a week, mm. all this other thing was happening that mm. I didn't participate in. You never want to look back with that and regret. Yeah. No, fair enough. And, you know, one of those things that really made Flickr great was that it was the, your understanding of communities, communities and how they come together. And in particular, the photographic community um, and, and understanding how they they think and they went through. You've discussed I, I, the, the issue of social media and the issue of, of how social networks perhaps are no longer serving us. There's a, um, a guy called Tristan Harris, which I'm sure you know, who talks a lot about the addiction capabilities of social media, how some applications are not designed with our health in mind. What perhaps can you share with in terms of the evolution of, of, a, of a network like Flickr versus things that are today forming versus what we think potentially should be in how you create a social, social media brand today to factor in those elements of, of mental health and some issues you covered in should this exist? Oh, I think it's actually a very easy thing. You do not want to build social media. You want to build online community. Mm -hmm. And online community is what we were building when we were building Flickr. Communities are things that you have to participate in. Communities are things where you know each other. Communities are also things where you defend each other mm -hmm. against racism, sexism, um, kind of uh, trolling, attacks, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things because you're part of a community. And at some point in probably around circa 2007 or eight, I would say, mm -hmm. online community, which had been what it was called, became and was named by probably large corporations, which we are all too familiar with, renamed as social media, which mm -hmm. meant that we were passive consumers. We were pigs at a trough. Mm -hmm. And if we were white supremacists, mm -hmm. if we were misogynists, it did not matter so long as our attention could be gathered and sold. Mm. And our attention, it turned out, was not just being used mm. to sell us advertising 
as it had been in this very innocent, somewhat innocent looking age now of advertising, where we're sitting there and we're, we're look, watching the television set. And then it advertises us a hamburger. And our tendency to want to go buy a hamburger increases by X percent, right? That seems yeah. like actually now, unbelievably straightforward and naive. Yeah. We did not realize that our political position, yeah. that our identities were going to be sold yeah. to, we're going to be sold to the highest bidder, right? We yeah. could actually see the evolution and the exploitation yeah. of the members, so-called, of the mm. audience, which were just turned into passive consumers mm -hmm. in social media, where mm. we were just being kind of harvested and then sold ideology, Right? Mm. There's just been a massive shooting right now of a very right-leaning person who probably gained all of their um, kind of bias against Muslims where mm. they just kind of attacked this mosque in, in, mm. in, in New Zealand, learned all of that online. Yeah. And all of this has actually been created by the transformation of online community into social media. And so I want to discover how you managed that early community in Flickr. I know that part of it came from understanding the customer. I know you were very involved with dealing with anything having to customer related super early and, and even later into the company, but also how you, how you manage that. How did you bring that sort of spirit that you have and passion you have towards communities into that? And how can you, what advice would you give founders today? to keep something from becoming passively into social media? How would you recommend they foster and maintain the high quality of a community and foster what you said, which is people defending each other, whether it be in terms of product that they build mm -hmm. uh, or what they share, how would you? Well, you have to de design it that way from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And you have to be very conscious of social dynamics, right? Computer scientists are not famous for having high EQ, mm. right? It's just not a not a typical strength. Um, people that are building software, right? It doesn't it doesn't um, kind of come from a lot of experience with relationships mm. and the difficulty of relationships, right? And kind of the ongoing negotiation and mm. evolution of your relationships with other people. Computers are a lot easier to relate to mm -hmm. in some ways for many people. It's a transactional relationship. You push a button, it does X or it does Y. It's very predictable. It's always available to you. It's mm -hmm. always interested in you. Like we yeah. were discussing with Wubot, right? Yeah. This is what machines are good at. What they're not good at is negotiating conflict and, and kind of like taking a kind of even keeled approach yeah. in terms of developing long-standing relationships with other people. And so one of the most important things that you can do, frankly, as a technologist who really cares about humanity and preserving those things that are special about us, right? Mm -hmm. And that are not available to mm -hmm. our kind of future world full of androids and cyborg, you know, many people dream of us becoming, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, Sergey Brin says that Elon Musk is being speciesist right which is kind of like a form of racist or sexist yeah. or speciesist because he's very devoted to carbon-based life forms as opposed to silicon-based life forms right if you're not that kind of thinker who believes that there's some kind of android utopia mm -hmm. in our future and believes that there is something worthwhile in the preservation of our humanity 
should really get away from your screens, go out there and have those difficult, messy, unpleasant, mm -hmm. and yet fulfilling and ultimately rewarding relationships with people and dig in deep on that front. And then once you've got that, then you should go and build software based around humanist principles. How big was Flickr at the, in terms of staff at the biggest point? Oh, I don't even know. I mean, it's it's still you know it's still kind of probably hundreds of people inside of Yahoo. Mm -hmm. But Before you know, as a startup, we started off with five people, mm -hmm. and what you see there, kind of ninety percent of of you know what is and was Flickr was probably built by between five and eight people. Because mm -hmm. what I'm curious about is, as the company grew, how that element that you just described about making sure about engaging with, with the people and engaging with the community, how, as, as the company started going past, let's say, 30 people, or how you managed to, to get the rest of your team to feel that? And to, we, didn't, to we, we didn't need to get anybody to feel that way mm -hmm. because basically they already were that way. And we were specifically hiring people based on that. Our team consisted of um, you know, a philosopher, me, who studied literature, a sociologist, a poli-sci major, and people who actually wrote poetry on the side. And it was the same thing if you look back and you read the accounts of all of the people that started Apple. They were poets, they were artists, they were zoologists, they were anthropologists. They had a very strong background steeped in humanities. Mm -hmm. And that actually was what made Apple so special and made mm -hmm. it so distinctive and made it so different from Microsoft, which mm. was which was the predominant computer at the time. Mm. And so and so it really was it's not something that um, I think you can kind of hire people who kind of think of people as kind of objects within yeah. the code. Right and kind of mm -hmm. acting and these unpredictable behaviors within the code. You can't hire people that think that way. You have to hire people who automatically already recognize the user as a valid yeah. individual. Um, you know, with all of the kind of messy humanity attached. Talking about humanity, one of the things that founders go through—not uh, everyone, but many do. There's always this one point in the, their company's journey that's the absolute lowest of the low. Sometimes it's the moment the funding is about to run out or when there's a founder that leaves or whatever. What would you say was the lowest low that you went through in your Flickr journey? Well, Flickr actually came out of the lowest low. I would say we had about three months of cash left in the bank. And this is already without most of us getting paid. Mm -hmm. And the only guy that was getting paid was the guy that had the three kids. And um, we were on fumes. We had about, yeah, we had about three months left to pay the one guy who was getting paid. Mm -hmm. And um, what happened was we had applied to the Canadian government for some funding for our prior product for Game Never Ending, which um, had been rejected. But apparently we had checked a box and in that application that said resubmit for next year. And we got a letter from the Canadian government on, I remember it was like December 23rd, right? It was like right before Christmas. And we had received a check for, I think it was $75,000, which was at that time a tremendous amount of money. And we knew that if we, and then it was, they were going to follow up, follow it up with another $75,000 and another 75. Mm -hmm. So it was like another $150. 
$150,000 coming. Mm -hmm. And that saved the company, right? We were truly on fumes and we were just about to shut down when we got this sort of magical check. Mm -hmm. And then with that, we built the prototype you know, very early stage version of what later became Flickr. And then once we launched Flickr, that thing started to grow like crazy and pretty soon was an unstoppable juggernaut. But if it hadn't been for that miserable period that we went through with Mm -hmm. no cash, no money, everybody's like, you know, eating cup noodles. And I had actually put two, not one, but two mortgages on the apartment that I had bought in order to make payroll. It was like, bet the farm literally Mm -hmm. quite literally on the company and um that's all the money that we had in the world and we put it all into it and then this check came from the canadian government and Mm -hmm. saved us one one thing that comes up sometimes when we talk about these uh, low lows is the idea of radical transparency and it um it's one of these things that will polarize people's opinions because it definitely sounds like a good thing to be radically transparent with your team but another and other times it can be actually quite distressing and also maybe disingenuous because there are some things that aren't maybe to the benefit of everyone. And just curious what your thoughts are and if you ever feel like the culture that you said in Flickr was one that was somewhere in the middle between the two extremes or what's your, your take? I'm not a big believer in putting stress on people where stress is not needed. I'm not a big believer in spreading the misery around. Mm. There are different kinds of managers. There are the, There's the shit fan. And there's the shit umbrella. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it's the it's the responsibility of the people in charge to be the shit umbrella for mm-hmm. their team and to not spread the misery around and not and basically take responsibility and shoulder the burden of most of the stress of the company mm-hmm. and protect the people from it. That is mm-hmm. not to say that people should not be aware of you know, I kind of I kind of look back at my very early career in technology where I was part of a startup where the founder was forcing, I had fortunately quit by this point because I could see the writing on the wall, but had made all of the employees work far beyond the point where he could pay them Mm. in full knowledge that he was unable to pay them. They lost their insurance. They lost three months of salary. Mm. They had never been informed or brought into the... And I do believe that you absolutely need to, when you talk to people who are signing up with you and joining your company, know that they're at a startup and Mm. startups almost always fail. That this is a... um, this is a highly risky proposition that you're entering into. Mm -hmm. The chances of us failing are great. The kind of path to glory is Mm. narrow it's a narrow path that only a few people make through it and Mm. if you're up for that Mm. you know come join us and also to let them know and remind them every bit along the way we have this much money left in the bank we need to raise this much money by this point Mm -hmm. otherwise i am going to give you three months Mm -hmm. of advance notice so that you can make decisions about your own life Mm -hmm. because what happened with that company where everybody worked until they were kind of realizing that they had just actually not been paid for the past three months, where they actually had lost mm-hmm. all of their health insurance. That guy was run out of town on a rail, if you can imagine, yeah. and was just poisoned his relationships with everybody else. So, you know, is that radical transparency to actually let people know what the status of their actual interest? No. 
You know, it's actually responsible communication from the part of the management. That said, I don't think that you have a responsibility to continue to kind of engage people in all of the stressful, like the ups and downs, which as we know with a startup is just, you know, it's a, it's a constant ricochet between ecstasy and despair. And to protect people from that and to kind of keep things on a fairly as much as possible regular yeah. um, kind of pace and not be a, a shit fan. Yeah. Be a shit umbrella. <laughs> shit umbrella. That's a good way of putting it. Shit fan or shit umbrella. One of the things that has come up as a theme with other founders has been this idea that they uh, wish they had hired a specific person. I'm not, not going to tell you which one specifically, but a specific person or role mm-hmm. earlier. And they're like, man, I wish I had hired that CFO earlier, that COO earlier, that CMO. For you, was there a key hire like that, that you were like, it dramatically changed your day to day by having hired them earlier rather than, than later? And, and how would you uh, advise a founder to think through uh, when to hire like a senior person as opposed to somebody who's you know, potentially just amplifying somebody else's leadership? I would say as late as possible. I think that also there's a great deal of title inflation and that people who come to you looking for kind of inflated titles, like C-level titles, or even VP-level titles when they're just kind of fresh out of college is a bit, um, I see that happening all the time, and mm-hmm. there's a sort of um, inflation in terms of titles that I find kind of dubious. Um, I also think that people are often guided by their venture capitalists mostly to hire people that are like VP level, SVP level. Oh my gosh, I know somebody great from my, you know, kind of 15,000 person um, company, which has been very successful, who is a VP that can be put in charge of all of your marketing. Those people tend to be the worst hires um, for startups imaginable. They tend to already have practices in place. They've never invented anything in their lives. They're inflexible. They don't have the ability to kind of try things and fail, try things and fail and find their way to the right solution. Mm -hmm. They have an ability to kind of pivot with constantly changing markets. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to err on the other side. I'm a kind of an early stage startup person and my regrets are usually having hired those people too early. In the US, you hear about acquihires and in Europe, you have them a little less so. You know, it's great to see the story of Filker and, you know, with, with, with many founders would have loved to have or would love to have is, you know, a smooth transition into another brand. How would you share the story of how you went about that process? And how would you advise startups thinking about investing in time and in, in finding somebody who might be able to acquire them or, or help transition their company if, if they no longer want to run it or if they just see that it would be uh, better suited underneath a different umbrella? Yeah, I mean, there's different kinds of um, acquisitions. Some of them, they're, they're just acquiring the product, mm-hmm. right? It's something crucial that they want to add to their offerings. Um, and there's other acquisitions that are they're acquiring the team. They're going to shut down your product and they're going to just use your team to build something based on their existing objectives. Those are very different kinds of acquisitions, acquihires versus acquisitions for the state, the existing product. Mm-hmm. Flickr was fortunately the kind where they were actually acquiring Flickr and it stood alone as its own product. It wasn't transformed into Yahoo Photos, which was actually, um, there was some effort to do that at the very beginning. Those, you know, acquisitions can be, can be as kind of as, as been well recorded, um, very challenging, right? And it depends on really what the entrepreneur wants to get out of it. 
right? Does the entrepreneur, are they excited about building the new product within the parent company that has acquired their startup? Are they okay with shutting down the product um, that they had been devoting the past X years of their life to, right? Um, what is their attitude going into the new company? And, you know, specifically when I was doing Flickr, I was, um, I was thinking about Yahoo. Um, everybody had said, oh, being acquired is awful. They don't understand. They're a big company. They don't understand entrepreneurship. Um, I heard this as kind of, um, you know, gospel basically out there in the entrepreneurial world. But what I did was I framed my experience there as I was entering Yahoo University. My time there was going to be probably about three years based on the contract that I had signed. And I knew that at the time when I was acquired that I was going to go there and I was going to learn. I was going to learn everything that I could only learn at a big company, new technologies, mm. big data, search, all of these things that you can't learn as a startup and as, as a small company mm. and ways to innovate within a world that had incredible power because of its incredible engineering teams because of the scale at which you were operating mm. because of the amount of data that those companies were able to manage mm -hmm. and that's what i did i looked at the i looked at my experience there as a learning mm. experience and made every day count mm. in that regard and that's a very different approach to a lot of the entrepreneurs that i saw who would just go in there and and complain mm. endlessly about the sluggishness of the organization mm. about the bureaucracy that they had to kind of pass through in order to kind of get anything built um and so on like they just didn't they just didn't have the right attitude going in and they i have to say were almost always miserable when mm. they were there so so much of it is about your attitude going in mm. how is this going to um you know affect my life right? How am I going to make the best of this relationship? How am I going to maneuver myself into a part of the company where I can thrive? And so on. So, I mean, I kind of feel like you have to be entrepreneurial if you're an entrepreneur inside of organizations that that way too, hmm. which is not always embraced, right? But you can find like-minded people in any organization and there is no innovation deficit at these large companies. There's incredible innovation happening there. And often the way that you can innovate inside of these big companies is innovating on process. Hmm. Well, I, I want to fast forward now back to today with uh, some of the work that you're doing in the SVC. And if you could go through top three things that you think through when you start working with a founder that is based on your operational experience today, what are the top three things that you know, you're avoiding because we were talking earlier about how sometimes VCs can make certain mistakes. Um, what what are the things that you sit down with somebody and say, "All right, look, we're now working together. These three things you should consider." Well, I, I mean, I do think that it barely varies by company. So, you know, one thing that VCs are not famous for is listening mm -hmm. and and kind of trying to understand what are the particular needs of each company is different. And each company has different needs. So really sitting down with the entrepreneurs and figuring out where are their pain points, where are their strengths, where are their weaknesses, 
Who do they need to hire in order to compensate for those weaknesses? How do they stop doing all of the things that they're not good at mm. so that they can do the things that they are good at, right? Mm. And actually being um, kind of like fairly flexible and dynamic in terms of what you do for each company. Because sometimes they need help in hiring. Sometimes they need help in their relationship with their co-founders. Sometimes they need um, access to different um, you know, markets. Um, sometimes they need access to capital, which obviously we can help with, um, you know, building their next round. So it really varies. And I, and I think as an, as an entrepreneur, um, um, become an investor, I have a particular advantage because not all of the investors that you find out there, they have MBAs. They've looked at and sat on mm. the boards of companies, but they've never actually been in the day-to-day. -day. Mm. And those are the ones who I see repeatedly putting in CMOs and VPs mm. and kind of people from large companies that are actually ill-suited to startup life, right? I'm mm. a very early-stage investor. Mm -hmm. I have started companies I've invested in. I invested in, for example, Kickstarter mm. when it was a PowerPoint deck. I have been in angel rounds mm. of um, you know companies that have gone on to um, IPOs. And so very early stages of the company, that's why I love investing at mm. this stage of the company is because you can have a really close relationship with the entrepreneur. You can be helpful in ways that mm. you can't be later on. And that's the part of it that I love. Mm. That's my favorite part of, of, um, of investing. So would you say that as an investor, you're, you're heavily skewed towards the founding team more so than maybe the market or the product, or do you weigh them equally? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on, on what people are building. I think that's very important. Um, and also in early stage investing, um, you know, obviously you're doing, you're making a judgment call on, you know, are these the people that are going to be able to pull this off and have the stamina to, to go through all of those um, you know, kind of ups and downs. But, um, you know, one of the things that we focus on investing in is movements and making sure that there's a um, societal or cultural force that is behind the investments that we're making. And if you look at some of my most successful investments, you know, Etsy was at the forefront of the handmade and DIY movement. Um, Blue Bottle Coffee was at the very beginning of the artisanal coffee um, you know, an artisanal food mm -hmm. movement. They're all part of these things that have a lot of impetus and uh, momentum behind them. People are talking about it. Consumers are um, actively engaged and yeah. promoting it. And customers are very dedicated to it. I feel like that brings us back full circle to conclude with a little bit more about the should this exist? Because first of all, l let's, let's put in a plug there. How can people discover it? You can go on to Apple Podcasts yeah. and anywhere else that you listen to your podcast, search for Should This Exist and um, subscribe. It's been an incredibly fulfilling uh, journey. We have made it to the mm. number one tech podcast, which was, um, you know, kind of running from the launch, mm -hmm. uh, you know, up through um, the third episode. It's been mm. fantastic reception to the podcast, and it was in the top 10 globally across all of the different categories as well that's awesome which is amazing that's so awesome. it's been it's been a, it's been a great it's been a great thing because it's it's funny you said a lot of your investment thesis is around is this existing is this starting to really grow and then should this exist seems like a really cool way of, of bringing that together yeah well thanks for joining us today katarina i really enjoyed learning about ins and outs and you know i i'm i'm tempted to to ask you one last question only because we were talking about it earlier about sort of Maybe maybe it's like a crystal ball question. Maybe we can just end with that. Is mm -hmm. like, do you expect a correction? 
Yes, we all expect a correction. We've been expecting a correction for a really long time. And, you know, one of the things that I've always I've always felt is that I'm one of those people that thrives in adversity, yeah. right? When I, I am probably a better entrepreneur when I have less money rather than yeah. more money. And um, I was the co-founder of a, a prior fund called Founder Collective out yeah. of Boston on the East Coast. And my... Um, my partners there have written a bunch of really great um, posts about um, proper capitalization for companies, right? And I've been a kind of a long proponent of the the cockroach approach versus yeah. the unicorn approach of building a startup. And um, when you have your resources, you have to become more creative. You have to. Um, you know, money actually kills more startups than anybody is willing to admit, especially in the world of venture capital, who has got you know, money that they need to quote unquote put to work. When you hear those words, you should kind of back slowly away because those, those investors are actually not necessarily in capitalizing your company the proper way and the kind of the best interests of the company, but they're putting their money to work, so to speak. And so um, you know, being an early stage investor, when the correction finally comes, we're in a really strong place, mm. I think, in the ecosystem mm. to be able to take advantage of that. Excellent. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.